Be seated. Michael Brewer is going to make his way up right now, and he's going to read some scripture and pray for us. And after he does so, we're going to be taking up our morning offering and having the children be dismissed for Children's Church. So, Michael, if you come right now and do that for us. Morning. Be reading from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, if you want to follow along and if you want to stand as we read the word. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that, that he willingly laid down his life for us so that we could enter into your kingdom so that we could be a part of your church, so that we could know you and have salvation. Thank you, Lord, for the love that you show for your people. Thank you, Lord, for this church family. Group of people has for the gospel. Lord, for pastors. Lord, for... Thank you, Lord, for, for putting the gospel on our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you, Lord, for the salvation you've given us. Pray, Lord, today for the hearts of the people that are here. Pray, Lord, that you would prepare hearts to hear the message that Pastor Steve has for us. Um, thank you. We love you. And it's your son's name we pray. Amen. So as you're being seated right now, the children can be dismissed for Children's Church and the ushers will be taking up the morning offering.
Well, again, I stand with me as we honor God in reading His Word together this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you today, there should be uh, one close to you or in the, underneath the chairs in front of you, perhaps. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we'll be at this morning. Ephesians 2, if you're taking one of our church Bibles there, it's page 1160. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 11 this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember at that one, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that it, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity to assemble together as the church this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the teaching that's taken place in Sunday school this morning and the encouragement that's taken place during the week through small groups and other Bible studies and the time that we've had even privately to gather over your word. Lord, now as we gather corporately in this room, we would ask God that you would help us to understand the word of God that's been read just now. Lord, help us to know how to apply it to our life. Help us to see the greatness of who you are, God, and what you've planned for the church and how you planned the church. And the greatness of your grace that's called many of us who are here to be part of this church and maybe calling some this morning. God, we thank you for your grace. We ask you to speak now. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know what it is that your dream home might be. I shared uh, in preaching through these verses on Sunday nights a few weeks ago that my dream home, Dan and I talked about when we first met, if we could build a dream home, it would be a home up in the mountains, maybe in the Rocky Mountains or where I'm, I'm from in East Tennessee, up in the Smoky Mountains. And, and one, of those houses, one of those houses, it's log cabin houses, you know, with a wraparound porch. I kind of always like one of those wraparound porches. Then about 200 acres of primetime whitetail deer hunting property that was all mine. Fenced off with gang cameras all over the place, Kyle. Wouldn't that be great? That's my, that's my dream home. And that dream home that I have in my mind and I envision uh, would require a special blueprint. I'd want to make sure I had a plan for it to build it just precisely as I uh, envisioned living in it. Well, this morning I want us to talk about God's sort of dream home, God's house, which is God's church, God's building. Once you look at verse 22 in chapter 2 and notice what it says. Are you looking at your Bible? Chapter 2, verse 22 says this. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now I want you to think about the majesty and wonder of that verse of Scripture. You, believers, are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are God's house. You are God's, this is what, you are what God envisions. You're, you're God's dream house. You're, you're what He's envisioned before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. 
He wants us to remember that. So we see twice in these verses that I read this morning. To remember, to remember the wonder and grandeur of what it means to be part of God's house, God's church. When you look at the whole span of Scripture, God wants a special relationship with a special people in a special place. You see it in the Garden of Eden, don't you? God has this special relationship with Adam and Eve in this special place, and they sin and they're expelled from it. But it's still God's plan to have a special relationship with a special people in a special place. So he calls Abraham, makes a covenant with Abraham. Then he's, his descendants, the Israelites, he makes a covenant with them through Moses. And his plan is for them to go to the promised land, this special place where God would have a special relationship with them in a special place, but they're expelled from that. Yet, this was God's plan to have a special relationship with a special people in a special place in Israel, in the tabernacle as they made their way to that special place, the promised land. There, God would manifest His presence. That was His dwelling place, the tabernacle, a fancy tent. When they got to that special place, the land of Palestine, the city of Jerusalem was chosen for God's dwelling place, where later a permanent structure was built called the temple, and the glory of God would be manifested there in that physical building in a special way. But as I mentioned, they were expelled from that land. God still wanted, though, a special relationship with a special people in a special place. So now we come to this passage of Scripture, and we look at verse 22, that you are the dwelling place. And so what we find out, God wants a special relationship with a special people, and you are the place. It's not a building. It's you. That was God's plan all along. To have a special relationship with a special people and the special place is you, to reside in you. What is the church? What is the church? Let me give you a definition. We're going to revisit this definition, Lord willing, over the next few Sundays. The church comprised of all people. Get it? All people who are true believers is God's holy dwelling place. And it's a miraculous statement that's derived right from this passage of Scripture that we're looking at. The church comprised of all people who are true believers is God's holy dwelling place. He dwells in the church, not in this building as wonderful and blessed as we are to have it, but in the people in the church who are believers, true believers. He's not dwelling in every single person in this room. I pray that before the service is over, He will be. He'll be dwelling in you. The Holy Spirit will regenerate your heart, bring you, make you alive, and you'll become part of His church. But He dwells in believers. And so what a beautiful and sweet time it is when we gather on Sundays, the first day of the week, to remember the resurrection of Christ, to remember the gospel, and God's people, God's church, are gathering together in whom He dwells. They're gathering. What a sweet and special time that is before we part and go our ways throughout the week and meet occasionally, right? This is a blessed time. No wonder the Scripture says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. That's a special time where we exert, we exhort and we encourage one another. Because the day is drawing near when He will return. And we need to remember this gospel. My parents, I remember their, they had a, 
dreams since my dad, right when they were first married, that he wanted to build his own home one day. And we grew up, first place we lived was in a small trailer on my grandparents' farm. And I thought when we were very little, probably four or five, if they were going to build a house there, I remember laying out stones and rocks and marking off the property. And I remember getting stung by yellow jackets when we were doing it. But they decided not to build their house there. They began to pray about a place, and so a few years went by, and we moved from that trailer. We moved to a couple other places and lived, rented, bought a house. But eventually, when I was nine years old, my parents had saved up enough money. They were both school teachers. They had saved up enough money to where they could buy a piece of property themselves. And I remember they took us over close to the church where we grew up. There was a piece of property. And I remember our parents took us there, and it was right up in the mountains. They wanted a, their, their, their ideal spot, their ideal location was, was a scenic view of the mountains and being very close to the church we grew up in. Well, it just happened they had this very scenic location that they found that was thin walking distance. We'd walk a lot of times on Sunday mornings right down the little country road right to the church. It was the perfect spot. It was the perfect place. It made perfect sense to build a house there. I remember us getting down on our knees together when mom and dad went to that field. They said, boys, me and my brother, we, let's, let's just thank God right now because we know this is the place. And they bought that field and they built that house. It was the perfect place, the perfect spot. It made perfect sense. When it comes to God's special place, what, what's the location for His dwelling place? The perfect spot for His dwelling place. Where will God's building be built? It was not, I'm telling you, anything impressive. It's not what you would have thought of. The place where God would build His church, His house, was not chosen because of its potential. The building site for the church of Jesus Christ was simply unimaginable. So this morning I want to talk with you about one component of this blueprint for this church. And this component I want to talk about this morning is the illogical building site for the church. It doesn't make sense. It's not a logical choice. In our minds, from our perspective, the illogical building site for the church is unholy ground. An unholy people where a holy God would dwell. Why is it illogical? Because the people are unholy, because of the sinfulness of men. Let me give you three reasons very quickly that this was an illogical place, this church, these people. The sinfulness of men, number one. Look at your Bible in verse 11 and notice the first word, therefore. Therefore points us back. It points us back and we realize as we look back at what's been written before that it doesn't make sense that God would, the Holy God would choose the people, any people that for that matter, Gentiles especially, to be His dwelling place. But you look in chapter 1 verse 4. Look at your Bible in chapter 1 verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be Holy and blameless before Him. 
And did you get that? And so this is not God's plan B here. It's not like, well, Israel failed, and so i got to come up with another plan. No. Before the foundation of the world, God had this blueprint. It's not like when this church was built, this building was built about 8, 10 years ago, and I imagine when you were building it, there were a lot of changes along the way. Oh, we didn't think about this. We better do this. Well, it's not that way with God's plan. Before the foundation of the world, He chose us to be holy and blameless before Him. Notice it says that we should be, look at chapter 1, verse 4 again, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. We should be holy and blameless before Him means we were not We were unholy ground, yet before the foundation of the world, God's vision, His dream house, so to be, that He's going to dwell in on earth is these people who are not holy. And we see it highlighted again in chapter 2, verse 1. Look at it. Look at your Bible in chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, dead in sin, following the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3, among whom some of us live. Does it say that? What's your Bible say? Are you looking at it? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires not of God, not of holiness, but the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature... Children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God did not look out at the span of all that He created, the span of humanity, and say, they impress me. I'm going to build my place right there. Those are the people I'm going to choose to be my house, to be my church. Because they impress me. No, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest. And yet He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to build His church upon this kind of unholy ground. Somebody might say, what about Jesus' words to Peter where Jesus says to Peter, and the disciples, who do people say that I am? And some say this and some say that. And Peter... He says, the disciples trying to get him to be quiet because he's always sticking his foot in his mouth. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he got it right. There's a gasp from the disciples. Oh, he didn't get us in trouble. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember what Jesus said to him? You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. So what is it? He's going to build his rock. What about Peter? Is he going to build his house upon Peter, the rock, the church? Yes, of course. It doesn't contradict. He's going to build his house upon those who profess the faith that Peter has. Remember what happened right after that? When Jesus says how he's going to go about constructing this house? The Son of Man must be delivered over the hands of sinful men. Three days later, rise again. What does Peter say? It'll never happen. May it never be that you would go to the cross and die. He doesn't see the necessity of the cross. And what does Jesus say to him? He calls him the devil. Get behind me, Satan. He says to him right before that, that flesh and blood did not reveal this to to Peter. 
not flesh and blood, but the, but the Spirit. God had revealed it to Peter that Peter was the Christ. But you see, when God says, when Jesus says to Peter, I'm going to build my house upon you, Peter, upon this church, it's going to be upon people that are sinners like Peter who profess faith in Christ. Later, Peter who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, when he's brought to the, brought to the cross, when he's being tried on his trial, he, he cusses. He says, I don't, I don't know the man, I tell you. He denies he ever knew his name. But yet, because of God's amazing grace that we sung about this morning, God's going to build His house upon sinners like Peter who profess faith in Jesus Christ. The building side is illogical that God would choose sinners, any, to be saved. It reminds us this morning, one point of brief application is this, folks, when we're sharing the gospel. Somebody told me this week, I want to embarrass them. They said, Preacher, you'll be proud of me. I shared the gospel yesterday. And I said, Well, I'm glad to hear that. They said, I shared the gospel and I didn't throw up. I said, Well, well good for you. It reminds us, we think of these first point about why this is unlogical, the sinfulness of man, is that when we share the gospel, we need to spend much time talking about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. They've got to be lost before they can be saved. Spend much time talking about the holiness of God and man's sin. It doesn't make sense that God would choose this place. This is His house. He's longed for from all eternity past, yet it's unholy ground because of the sinfulness of man. It just doesn't make sense that God would do this. Secondly, because of the separation of the Gentiles. When we look at the really, the getting to the thrust of these verses we're looking at, the separation of the Gentiles. Look at verse 11 in your Bible. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. Literally, the word Gentiles means nations. You had the nation of Israel and everybody else were nations. They were Gentiles. Yesterday, I had the kids over here and they were running around about driving me nuts there for a while. And I love them, but they were acting like a little heathen. That's what Gentiles were referred to as heathen. People act lawless. Act like they don't know God. That's what the Gentiles were. In the Bible... God is telling the Gentile believers here to remember something. Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. So in the flesh, as sinners, you were heathen. There's been a lot of talk in our country about illegal aliens coming to our country and what to do about our borders and all these type of things. So the term is somewhat familiar to us. We think of an illegal alien. We think of someone that does not have any legal right to enjoy the blessings of being a citizen in the United States. They're an illegal alien, not supposed to be here. They don't have any rights or privileges. And I want you to look in your Bible at verse 13. And notice it says this, Remember that, he, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated. You see the word alienated there? It says about the Gentiles, you were aliens, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. 
So here you have the nation of Israel. And these Gentiles are being told that they are alienated. They are aliens. They have no legal right to enjoy the blessings of being part of God's nation. Part of what? What's the Bible say? Alienated from what? The commonwealth of Israel, the nation of Israel. Remember at that time, at one time, it used to be you were not identified as God's people at all. As God's church. Romans chapter 9 verse 4 and 5 says this about the Israelites, about the chosen nation. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Israelites were recipients of much special revelation. They were God's chosen nation. And to not be part of that nation was to be doomed. We can stand and say, rightfully so, that we are proud to be an American. And certainly I am, and I'm sure you are proud to be an American. But as Brian Borgman says, if you are not counted among God's people, His holy nation, then what does that matter? If you're not among God's holy nation, it doesn't matter what nation you belong to, whether it's American or Palestinian or whatever it might be, you are not. As part of this nation, though, they had a special sign. Look at your Bible in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So this nation of Israel, they had a special sign, and it was circumcision. They would circumcise the males at eight days old. Gentiles had no special sign. They had no special king. Notice it says in verse 12, they were separated from Christ. You remember what it's like to have been separated from Christ? That's what he's telling them. They were separated from Christ at one time. Christ, the king, the Messiah, was Israel's king. He was their Messiah. They had no part in him at one time in that portion of redemptive history. They had no special promise. Notice what it says in verse 12. Remember at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. They were foreigners. They were strangers. The Gentiles had no covenant. They hadn't, there was no promise specifically made to the Gentiles before Christ came. In August 12, 2000, there was a Russian submarine named the Kursk, and some of you might remember it. And the Kursk had like 118 sailors on board, and there had been an explosion on board somehow. And this submarine, it was on national news for several days. The submarine killed most of the sailors when the explosion went off, but there were about 23 sailors on board the submarine that went in one of the airtight compartments and were trying to survive whilst... Uh, an international attempt was being made led by Vladimir Putin to rescue them. And they could not be rescued. They all died in that submarine, the watery, the watery grave it was. And the Bible says here, similarly it is about us. We have no hope. You see that in verse 12? Remember at one time you were separated from Christ Strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. 
no way of getting out of that situation. And without God in the world, they had no hope, no special promise, no special king, no special sign. They were no special nation, and they were they had no God. I don't know if you know what it's like or not to maybe watch a group of people having a party and you've not been invited and you're outside looking in and observing and oh hey maybe you wished you would have been invited but you've not been invited now when I think of the Gentiles which have been most of us before the coming of Christ it was as if we're on the outside looking in at this glorious thing just imagine being up maybe in the mountains during the time of the tabernacle and looking down as a Gentile and watching the nation of Israel and, and I see them down there. And they're all gathered around this strange-looking tabernacle. And they're bringing sacrifices. And I can hear them singing praises to Yahweh, to God. And as a Gentile, I'm on the outside looking in. Well, I could be circumcised and be a Jewish proselyte, but even then I could only go to the court of the Gentiles. I would not be allowed any closer than that. I was on the outside looking in, and that's what these Gentiles are being reminded of was true about them before Christ had come. So, why were they restricted at one time? Notice in your Bible in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, and then look at verse 12, remember that you were at that time. Why were they restricted at one time? Why were they restricted at that time as Gentiles from being in the presence of God like the Israelites were. Well, I've shared two reasons why it's illogical that God would choose these people to be His holy building place, His church. One, the sinfulness of man. Two, the separation of the Gentiles. And number three, the holiness of God. The holiness of God. I want you to remember Isaiah had a vision in Isaiah chapter 6. He had a, a vision of God's holy dwelling place in heaven. You remember the vision? And Isaiah sees God seated on His throne and the cherubim and seraphim, these heavenly creatures crying out, covering their eyes. Holy, 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 they say to one another. He sees a vision of the holiness of God. So I want you to imagine looking back down at this tabernacle as a Gentile and looking at them Knowing you're on the outside in, here are the, here are the Israelites. They're, they're enjoying worship at the tabernacle and worship at the temple. They've, they've, they've received the law of God on Mount Sinai, which governs every aspect of their life. I mean, everything they did, if you read in the book of Leviticus, they're reminded of the holiness of God. It's called the holiness code, the holiness of God. And their own uncleanness they're reminded of as well. And that they've got to be clean, ceremonially clean, to be in the presence of God and enjoy corporate worship as the assembly of God's people. I mean, if they had fungus in their house, there was a law for that. If there was an, a bodily fluid coming from their body, there was a law about that. If they accidentally touched a dead body, there was a law about that. Every single thing they did, everything the Israelite came into contact with, they're reminded of the holiness of God. And you might say to yourself, man, I'm glad I didn't live in that time. But the psalmist looked at God's law and said, Oh, how I love this. Oh, how I love your law. How I love Leviticus. Because that's all they knew up to that point. And when the psalmist said that as an Israelite, he understood, I'm not like the Gentiles. We have the law. God's given us a means of this law and doing these things that we can get close to God. 
He's holy, but He's made a way that we can approach Him. And there they are. They're standing, the Israelites, gazing upon the temple, gazing upon the place where there's a holy place, and then back behind it there's a holy of holies. And they're standing there worshiping, bringing their sacrifices to the priest to be offered to God. It's a glorious thing. But I want you to understand, they are on the outside looking in as well. They can't go into the holy place. They can't go into the holy of holies. They've gotten near, but they've not gotten all the way. Remember what Isaiah, how Isaiah responded when he considered the holiness of God? He said, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people that are unclean as well. These Israelites were still unclean despite all the law and all the regulations. They were unclean. Look at your Bible in chapter 2. Verse 11 again, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Now look at the rest of verse 11. Are you looking at your Bible? By what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. The circumcision that was so special to Israel, Paul says here, once he bragged on his own circumcision, but he says about circumcision right there, almost like tongue in cheek so The circumcision made in the flesh by hands. They had received circumcision, but not a circumcision of the heart. They they were blessed to be close, but they could not go into the very presence of God. They themselves were standing on the outside looking in. Their hearts needed to be circumcised. So I've said all this to bring us to this point. God's choice for His church had nothing to do with the quality of their lives, but everything to do with the quantity of His grace. For Jew and Gentile, it had nothing to do with the quality of their lives, but everything to do with the quantity of His grace. That's what we see in Ephesians. It's all about His grace. God's illogical choice, however, was not illegal. You see, you see how sinful they are? They're a sinful people and God's going to, He's a holy God and He's going to choose unholy ground to build His temple, which are those people that profess faith in Lord Jesus like Peter who is a sinner. And He's going to choose Gentiles who, who, who seem even more abominable to Israelites, but Israelites themselves are separated from God. And so He's choosing to build his house. He's going to dwell in these people. How can he do that? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't even seem right that a holy God would just say, you know what, you sin, but I'm going to move on in your life anyway. But the good news is God's illogical choice is not illegal. How could sinful men be the holy dwelling place of God? And the answer is that the unholy ground is made holy by the blood of Christ. Amen? Look at verse 13 in your Bible. Are you looking at it? He said twice, remember at one time, remember at that time, but now. Does that remind you of anything? You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, but God, amen, being rich in mercy. Well, here it is. But now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. They've not just been brought near. There was a great cost. The price for their sin was paid. God's illogical choice of them was not illegal. The blood of Jesus was paid. God Himself, God Himself makes the ground holy, makes those holy that He's chosen so that He might dwell in them by dying for them. The wonder of it should humble us. The Bible says to these Gentiles in verse 11, remember at that time, you Gentiles in the flesh. You see that? You see verse 11? They were Gentiles in the flesh. But look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus. Got it? See the contrast? You are in the flesh. You don't want to be in the flesh before a holy God. You can't be. You're dead. Like some of you this morning. You're in the flesh. And when you stand in front of God, you're not going to survive. You've got to be in Christ Jesus. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You must be. That's the key. You must be in Christ Jesus. Even the Israelites, their circumcision was in the flesh made by hands. They had to be in Christ Jesus. Their heart needed to be circumcised. It didn't matter what had happened in their flesh or in their works. You must be in Christ Jesus. And so praise God. Before He created the world, before the very foundation of the world, He chose us in Him. He chose us to be in Christ Jesus. And so, we come before Him and we're, we're not in the flesh, but because of His grace, we're in Christ Jesus. We're in Him. We're protected. And we're not on the outside looking in. Because we're in Christ Jesus, we can do what Jesus does. We just go right into the very throne room of God. It tells us later in Ephesians chapter 2, along with the Israel, believing Israelites, we have full access to the living God. And He dwells in us because we are in Him. So here's the point of application I want to share with you as I prepare to close. It was kind of mentioned in Sunday school class this morning I was sitting in. Here's the application. Why do you go to church? Why do you go to church? I want you to notice what Romans chapter 16 verse 5 says as you think about your answer to that question. Romans chapter 16 verse 5 reminds us that the church is not a building. Greet also the church in their house. What I want to say to you is this. We don't go to church. We don't go to church. We are the church. You see that? We go. So why do you go to this place as the church? Because in Romans, we see that greet also the church in their house. The meeting place was the house, but the church was the people, right? So we don't go to church. We go to meeting with the church. And we don't want to forsake the assembly of that. So why do we go to church? Why do we gather here? We must gather as a church to remember the gospel. This is the main thrust of these verses we're looking at in verse 11 and 12. Verse 11, he says, remember, 
Verse 12, he says to the Gentiles, Remember, remember this grandeur of your salvation and what God has done for you. Remember, this is what he prays twice in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 15, he says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, he's praying that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would know the hope of their calling, that they would know how much God has saved them, that they would remember that this is the grace of God that has saved them. And he prays, and Tim Johnson will preach about it this evening from Ephesians chapter 3. He prays in Ephesians chapter 3, they would know the height and depth and breadth and width, all the dimensions of the love of God in Christ Jesus, that they would re remember, that it would affect their hearts, that they wouldn't just hear the gospel and think about how they used to be lost and how Jesus died for them, and they would say, oh, that's nice. We've been talking about this on some Sunday nights. The gospel's not nice. The gospel, how could you say that? Well, the God, that's nice that Jesus died. The, it's everything, right? It's everything. And he wants them to get that. He, he wants them to remember. He wants, it's not like they, they, they've got some uh, spiritual form of, of amnesia here that they've forgotten who Jesus is. But, the, but they're not dwelling, they're not meditating upon Him. He says, you've got to remember. You've got to know how great this is. And He's praying that way for them. And God's inspired this word for us this morning because God Almighty is the one that wants us to remember. He's chosen you before the foundation of the world. And of all the things you've got on your mind this morning, what should permeate their minds the most is the greatness of the grace of God. So, let me ask you this. Do you remember what it was like to be lost at one time? I think this is what he's saying to the Gentiles here in verse 11 and 12. Do you remember what it was like to be lost? To be separated from Christ without hope and without God in this world. So church family, what effect should this tremendous truth about God's illogical choice of us. What effect should that have upon us that God has chosen us as the location? Think about it again. God has chosen us. All those who are believers this morning. Hello, my name is a child of the risen King. He's, he's chosen me and He's chosen you if you're in Christ to be His holy dwelling place. What, what effect should that have on us? Well, two things very quickly. Number one, Thanksgiving, Right? Remember, remember, so you'll be thankful and you'll be humble. I was at a football game here a couple of weeks ago and a man sitting close to us was just saying, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, over and over and over every time a play didn't go his way. And I thought to myself, I'll go down and visit with him for a moment and say, I, I, I hear you're pretty religious, you know. But I thought my sarcasm might not be very well received, so I didn't do that. Then I thought later about my initial frustration and offense. How gracious it is that God, not flesh and blood, that God has revealed to me by His grace that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what humility and thanksgiving should overwhelm the frustration and offense of my heart.
how thankful we should be to be saved. Number two, endurance. Endurance. What effect should this glorious gospel, this good news have upon our hearts that He has chosen us unholy ground and made us holy? That we would be thankful and that we would endure. Folks, we're going to receive all kinds of news in this world. And a lot of it's going to be good. We talked about this some Wednesday night at our Christianity Explored Bible study with O-Ring with the men. A lot, of the, a lot of the news is going to be so good. One of the men was sharing, I want to embarrass him. He said, well, the news I heard was my wife said yes. And I said, well, so you were surprised that your wife said yes? And he, he said, well, I'd asked three others before then. So yeah. <laughs> it was really good news when she said yes. Some talked about the birth of their children. There's this good news that comes. And then there's, there's bad news. There's the bad news that comes that you you got cancer going throughout your body or, or, or you get hear the word at work, we don't need you anymore. Somebody says, nice try. I don't love you anymore. I'm seeing someone else. The only thing that will sustain us as we talked about Wednesday night, is the best news. And that's the good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only thing that will lead us and sustain us to endure is the best news, which is the good news. So when we come to church, we gather together as the church. The reason we should come together is to remember the gospel. To sing the gospel, to hear the gospel taught, to hear the gospel preached, to encourage one another to keep living for Christ. Would you bow your head with me this morning? The Bible teaches us that each of us has sinned against God and we are separated from Christ and we were without hope. Our default nature is that we are children of wrath. We are not children of God. It's not automatic. You must be born again. So, choose Christ. Live for Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Call upon Him and be saved. We would love to talk with you about how God might be at work in your heart. Even now during this time or after the service is over, we'd love to talk with you. But Father, right now we pray that if there is one among us that has not embraced salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life, we pray that You'd grant that understanding. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters here this morning as we gather and some of us have good news on our minds and many have bad news on our minds. But Father, may the best news that what you have done, may that, may that, may that overwhelm our souls and lead us to be thankful and lead us to endure. Lead that to sustain us, God, so that we live holy lives. We not cave in. We don't throw in the towel. We keep believing in Christ. We keep trusting in Jesus. So, Father, I pray for weary saints that are here this morning. They would remember 
the gospel. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to stand right now and sing this hymn together. As we sing, I want you to think about the words of this hymn as we sing them together because it's, it's saturated with the gospel. I don't want you to sing this and say, well, that's nice. That's a nice, that's a nice song. No. Think about the, the wonder and beauty of the words we are about to sing to one another. And to God, lift your voices to Almighty God. If you want to come and pray, pray. Otherwise, lift your voices to God and praise Him for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Till it was a car. 
should I gain from His reward? I can't give an answer. It doesn't make sense. It's not logical. But this I know with all my heart. Jesus died. His wounds have paid my ransom. Christ Jesus has brought... What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus' body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you? The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. 
Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.